everyone. Welcome to Backstory Sessions. I'm your host, Matt. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome you to this episode of Backstory Sessions. I'm joined today by my co-host, Matt. Hey, Matt. Hey, Kat. Hey, hey everyone. How are you? Well, well, Matt. Uh, you know, this is our first, I believe, um, for our guest today. You know, we generally have had actors only and, um, you know, some musicians and that kind of thing, but today we have the producer awesome yeah and I, I mean i don't know do you, have you ever thought about producing um i mean i you know and probably some you know crazy fantasy or something it would be cool to uh produce a movie or uh you know videos or something like that but uh yeah i just don't think i have the organizational skills and talent for such a thing i don't know you push that button pretty good for the podcast <laughs> every week so uh, yeah, most weeks <laughs> you know, I, I kind of am wondering i guess in my mind i'm wondering um is it as glamorous and fun as it sounds like or is it like a whole lot of work so um i guess it would be a good time to introduce our guests and find out sure sounds good all right, today we have with us, uh, he is an actor, but he is also the film producer. So um, he has his latest film, uh, Demigod, which is coming out October 15th. So today we want to welcome to Backstory Sessions, Miles Doliak. Miles, welcome. We're so happy to have you. Hi, Kat. I'm happy to be here. Well, I guess you heard a little of our discussion, so... You know, tell us, like, what is producing like? What is it like to be the film producer? Well, it's a lot of putting out fires and overcoming the inevitable obstacles thrown in the path of the independent filmmaker and um, uh, writing checks, uh, looking at budgets and uh, bemoaning how you're going over them, <laughs> um, figuring, out, figuring out how to pay uh, name talent, uh, who's going to increase the p profile of your project? Um, it's you know it's one of those gigs that it's it's one of the most important roles jobs on a film set, but uh, also one of the most onerous. I mean the the only reason I really produce uh, my films is because I'm a bit of a control freak. I think I uh, I have only produced the films that I've directed also up to this point, including Demigod. Actually, I'm, I'm about to produce a film that I'm not directing for the first time a little later on in the year, so that, that's going to be an interesting experience. I guess it already is, but it's a, it's a... It's a... Uh, yeah, well, you know, it's... I, I see the producer's job as making sure the film uh, gets done, gets delivered, gets delivered close to budget, 
and ensuring that the director has the tools at his or her disposal uh, to implement his or her vision. Um, and and then of, and then of course you want to you want to make something that that is going to have a life beyond just being a really expensive souvenir. So casting, I think, is another important part of the producer's role and making sure that the uh, enough money is there to to bring the talent to the table that is uh, once again going to give the give the film a little bit of uh, additional heft in the marketplace. Sure. And so were you that kind of child growing up that, uh, you know, you need a control of things and you, you had the little planner and you know, were you that kind of person? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I've, I've often aspired to have the little planner, uh, but it really never it never quite works out for me. So, so no, I, I, uh, I didn't have the little planner. Um, but I, I was a precocious child. I was a child who, uh, was fascinated by the creative arts, um, at every level. And that was not just movies, but, but theater and music and visual arts, painting, sculpture. Um, so, um, from a very early stage, I knew that I wanted to be part of this world in some so where did you grow up? Where where was home? I grew up in uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which is sort of south central Mississippi, um, most notable for being uh, home to the University of Southern Mississippi. Um, some might say it's one of the birthplaces of, of rock and roll music. Um, but uh, it's a quaint little town, a university town. Um, it's... Uh, it's one of those places that has just enough culture to wet your proverbial whistle, you know, and just by virtue of the fact that there is this college scene, there's a bit of an independent music scene. Um, but I, I knew very quickly that I needed to get out of there and broaden my horizons um, to some degree. I mean, I'll, I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for my hometown. Um, but I knew it wasn't somewhere that I could stay forever. Were you in high school productions, community theater? Um, how did you oh, participate? Oh, 100%. 100%. I was, I was very fortunate to, to have uh, a high school, a high school drama teacher, Michael Marks in a program that, that really thrived. That was one of the top high school theater programs in the Southeast. And, and it, it's, you know, looking back on it now, growing up in the deepest part of the Deep South, I, it's just a, I, I'm, I'm so fortunate to have had that experience. Um, and uh, we traveled all over the country to drama festivals. Um, we also had a vibrant speech and debate program, so I spent a lot of time at speech and debate tournaments. Um, we had a, a strong community theater um, there in Hattiesburg, Hattiesburg Civic Light Opera. Uh, which I got to come back to many years later and, and direct some shows uh, for them, uh, which was, was really gratifying and a great treat. So, yeah, from a, from a very early age, I was on stage um, and engaged um, in some way, shape, or form. Um, so did you have a favorite form? Um, did you like acting more so than music or you know, did you just want to experience everything? I, I think at that early age, I liked acting.
acting and music and especially singing music uh, equally because most of the shows that I was involved in as a child were musicals. So I spent a lot of time singing and going to voice lessons and, and that sort of thing as well. Um, but really the, the older I got, it became clear to me that my first love was acting. Um, and I did everything within my power to pursue that dream, uh, including attending the North Carolina School of the Arts, went to Salem, North Carolina, and ultimately moving to New York and Los Angeles and coming back around to New Orleans through it's a long circuitous story. And I'm sure you'll ask more um, and ultimately bec becoming involved in the in the film scene here in South Louisiana. and Mississippi. <laughs> Well, so I am curious, um, since we know that you are kind of methodic and like to control the, the process, <laughs> um, for your own career path, how did you go about that? Um, was it just random luck that led you from one connection to another, or did you have a plan? Well, I mean, the thing is, uh, about being an actor, about making it in the entertainment industry, period is you can't control it at all i mean you're you're entirely at the mercies of at the mercy of the business and the people who can open the door or finance your movie or cast you or, or whatever um and so when i was young i i knew i wanted to get the best training possible i knew i wanted to, to become the best actor i could possibly be before striking out into the world um and so I knew I wanted to go to uh, an arts conservatory, um, which I think initially to maybe my parents' chagrin because, you know, I wasn't getting a proper, uh, quote, unquote, proper uh, edu education. You know, my undergraduate degree is a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree. Um, so I wanted to prepare myself, and, and I'm really grateful for that experience at, at North Carolina. And, and then I went to New York, and, I mean, I really didn't have much success at all. I mean, I, I was in some off, 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 times 10 plays, which were, which fed my soul, but they, they certainly didn't move the needle in terms of my career path and didn't pay much of anything. Um, I did some soap work. I managed to get in the unions, um, SAG and AFTRA and, and equity via some of that work. And, and I was grateful for that. But, um, you know, it, it's one of those things, going back to my college experience, when I was interviewing at, at colleges and I, I, um, I auditioned for several higher profile programs, but one of the things that caught my attention at North Carolina School of the Arts is when I was interviewing, I, I had a meeting with the assistant dean of drama there, Robert Bessida, and Robert Bessida told me, the only reason you should come to this program is if you can't imagine yourself doing anything else in the world other than acting don't come here if you can imagine yourself doing anything else. And that struck me because at the time I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. This was my great, the great love and passion of my soul. And I had to pursue it, you know, come hell or high water. Um, and, and it was really that passion and that need um, that, that kept me going in New York and, and ultimately in LA when, you know, LA is a tough place, of course, because you're, the business is all around you. You know, you can see it, feel it, smell it. Uh, I'm literally, a, I'm a cater waiter at the governor's ball of the Academy Awards. Literally. I'm, I'm, you know, 
four feet away from Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, but I'm a thousand miles away from them, obviously, you know, in the, in the grand scheme, in the, in right. you know, reality. Um, so, but, you know, well, I was go just ahead. gonna say, like, you know, I, I think it seems like that it's glamorized in your mind and you have this passion and then you go there and it really is a business. Like this yeah. really is a job. Um, so when did that part hit you? Uh, very early on. I, I mean, arriving in New York was it was a rude awakening for me. When all of a sudden, you know, when I was in high school and uh, you know, I was I got all the leads, uh, and I when and when we were at drama festivals, I'd win awards for acting, and you know, I was a big fish in a small pond. And then you know when I when I got to New York and I went and auditioned for, you know, Roger and rent and didn't even get a call back. I was like, Oh, that's where we are now. <laughs> everybody's great. You know, everybody's fantastic. They can, and, and not just, they're not, they're not just good actors and singers. They're oftentimes great dancers in that city. That's something I've never done very well. Um, so you, the, the competition pool just, you know, blows up exponentially and you realize very quickly, this is going to be a hard, hard thing to break through. Um, so what I did, I mean, the approach I took, even at that early stage was to, okay, let me form my own theater company. Let, let me put on my own shows to provide opportunities for myself. I did that both in New York and in Los Angeles. Um, so from an, from an, early stage of being out of college, being in the industry, I was very much a self-starter. I, I realized that a very, uh, you know, early on that nothing was going to be given to me or handed to me. I was going to have to scrape and claw and earn it and even potentially provide my own uh, platform uh, for myself if I wanted to get anywhere. Um, and that's, that's, Basically, the story, the, the thing that, though, that, that happened in Los Angeles is I also realized that maybe there was something else that I could do. Maybe there was something else that I was equally passionate about. And that was, that was history and, and the realm of academia and education. I started taking classes at UCLA. Um, uh, there was a wonderful professor there, Scott Barchi, in the history department that taught early Christianity, Roman Empire. Um, and I took classes under him. I became fascinated with the culture of the ancient world and um, ultimately wound up a, a few years later at Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana, um, getting a Ph.D. in ancient history. And right about that time, this was just in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, uh, Hollywood invested in South Louisiana. Film production started booming in New Orleans and Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Suddenly, opportunities began to come my way. I had almost left it behind, and then I looked up, and I'm on HBO on Treme doing a scene with Steve Zahn, and I'm on Breakout Kings on A&E, and, uh, and I'm getting cast in these independent film projects and being inspired by independent directors and producers who said, I'm not going to wait for somebody else to you know, walk me through the door. I'm going to make my own opportunities. And I saw this sort of found, a, found kindred spirits in them. I, I saw what I had done when I was in New York and when I was in L.A. I, you know, I didn't know the movie biz well enough, but I knew the theater. I, I had grown up in it. I, I, had, I was steeped in it in, in my 
program at North Carolina School of the Arts. Um, and I just, I saw this, what was going on, and I said, you know, I can do this too. I can make my own films. And, and that's when I started uh, making, writing my own scripts, making my own films. And uh, in 2013, uh, we shot a film called The Historian, which is uh, a sort of chamber drama set in academia. They say, write what you know. I was, I was in higher education. I was in, gra- in graduate school at the time, and I wrote about the things that I was seeing going on in that world. I was fortunate to cast William Sadler in the lead in that, and, and a really wonderful cast. It included John Cullum and Colin Cunningham, Glenn O'Connor, some other great folks. We shot that movie, and it got uh, distributed, and and here we are, seven, eight years later, and we've done six features, Demigod being the latest. Uh, and when I decided, when I made that decision, I'm going to do my own stuff. Funny thing happened. I started getting more acting roles. You know, other people started going, oh, this guy's not so desperate anymore. He doesn't need it. You know, <laughs> we want him. Uh, <laughs> so um, I think, you know, they see the, there's an old saw that casting directors, directors can smell desperation a mile away. And maybe that's it. You know, when you, when you ever relax and feel comfortable in your own skin and you're like, I don't need your approval anymore. Um, that's maybe when things start to happen. It certainly was the case for me um when you are a casting director does that enter into your mind ever like um you know i know kind of what that might feel like and or do you Uh, i mean i i love actors i being being an actor i love actors i have great great empathy for for their plight and what they go through the fact of the matter is when i got on the other side of it as a producer and director and I'm, i'm looking at auditions and you realize how cruel it really is because an actor either walks in a room, submits a tape to you within 10 seconds, sometimes less, you know, if they're in the ballpark of what you're looking for, you don't need to watch the whole two or three minute audition. I mean, literally an actor can say their name and they're out of the running. They don't, they can walk in the room and not say anything and they're out of the running because they're just not what, what you're looking for. And it's not personal. It's just the business. So I, I did. I really I, I thought, wow, this is really this is really harsh on the one hand. But on the other, the director deserves to to make a film that that captures his or her vision. You know, and if that if that actor is not it, does not embody what the role, what 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 the director wants for the role, then that's the way the, the ball bounces, you know, so it, it is. Ever- it's a very- have you ever changed your mind um, or, re- or regretted not giving someone a chance? Because we hear sometimes of actors that pass up roles and then they later say, oh, I wish I would have, you know, taken that one. Does it ever work in casting that you sometimes? Um, that's a great question. I, I don't know that there's... Um... I don't. I, I can't really think of an example of of a somebody that I cast in my film and I thought mm, I should have gone a different way, per se. I mean, if, like anything, some performances turn out better than others. Some movies turn out better than others. Some scenes go beautifully. Some are not quite where you wanted them to be. And for for any number of logistical, budgetary, time reasons, um, but. 
I feel like I'm pretty good at giving actors a fair shake in the audition process. And I'm also pretty honest with them. If, if they're just not from a, a, a look perspective or, or whatever, not in the ballpark of what I'm looking for, I just say that. And it's not, it's not a reflection of their talent or their audition or their performance ability. Sometimes you just, you just don't fit the mold. And um, so, but, but I feel like, most of the time I, I'm pretty clear about that up front and I am, I try at my very best to be sensitive to, to an actor's feelings because it's a tough gig. I mean, you have to have rhinoceros hide to survive in this business as an actor. You're on display, you're being judged. Um, and you know, 75% of the time you're not going to get the part and that's tough. That's tough to stomach. Does it ever get easier? Um, so that you're just like, oh, well, I already know, you know, like three out of four of these I'm not going to get. So <laughs> you yeah. just accept it after a while. Yeah, I think you have to. I mean, I when I when I tape an audition or go in for an audition, most everything is, is taped now because of COVID. But when I tape an audition, I just forget about it. You know, I, I, I think Brian Cranston said, you know, you kind of have to look at acting as like like auditioning is the gig. You know, so do the best you can at the audition and then you're off work. Forget about it. You know, go have a cocktail or a good meal or turn on your favorite TV show and let it go. And then they call you back and yeah. you go, oh, who the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that has happened. That has happened. You know, I'll, I'll audition for something. A couple of months will pass and and my agent will send me an email. Hey, hey you know, they, they're making you an offer. You booked it. I'm like, what is what is that? I don't even I don't really remember reading for it, <laughs> you know. So, it yeah, you you just have to put it out of your mind. If you dwell on it, it it'll eat you alive. So yeah, and I haven't always been that way, but but in my as I've gotten older, I just say to myself, I'm going to do the best I can with this audition, and not making it precious. I'm not going to spend two hours on it, right? I'm going to give my complete undivided attention and everything I have for the next 30 or 45 minutes to shoot the best audition that I can. And then I'm going to forget about it. And if I book it, great. And if I don't, you know, that's the business. Right. Then there's three or four more that you can like, move on to. <laughs> yeah, <there>. right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just the, this, just this week I've had nine auditions and I, and they came in like on a Tuesday and were due on Thursday. And, <laughs> And I'm like, you just can't, they can't all be precious, right? You just have to get, you know, let's get it done, assembly line style. Let's give it our best shot. Um, get it in and, and move on. Um, it's, that's what we do. Yeah, because realistically, from what you've said, like, you know, they're only going to be looking for a few seconds anyways. And, uh, you know, so you're like, you're like putting so much into this, but really they probably are not going to even watch the whole thing well it depends for me if it's if if you get past the first 10 seconds if i'm still watching after the first 10 seconds you're in the ballpark now now it's like the next level it's like okay you've got the look vocal quality you've got ability now do, can you really embody the the emotional core of this role where i need this role to go right so now i'm going to watch the whole thing if you mm -hmm. if you can make it past that that first that 10 or so 15 second threshold 
Cool. Well, I, I'm saying I hope that a lot of um, young actors are listening. Um, you know, because I think this would make the process much easier for them to to hear um, that it's nothing personal. Because I, I'm sure, like you know, artistic people in general are very in touch with emotions and you know feelings, and um, so I think this definitely opened your eyes quickly to you know uh, how you can get through this rejection over and over and and still be fine i think that's a great point cat one and the last thing i would say on the audition front is uh, when you're taping when you go in a room if young actors are listening just give them you don't try to divine what it is they're looking for you bring you because if if you is not what they want then you're not going to get it anyway. And if you try to rack your brain and drive yourself insane trying to figure out or be something or crawl out of your skin, be something you're not because you think that's what you're looking for, you're just going to make yourself miserable. Mm. Bring your own unique talent, persona, ability to the table. And if, if that's what they're looking for, you're going to book it. And if not, you weren't going to get it anyway. So don't tie yourself up in knots over the thing. Give it your best shot and move on. That's good advice. Uh, another Very thing, good. Another thing you probably don't want to do, as our friend Courtney Gaines actually did at a uh, audition, is hold a knife to a producer's throat. <laughs> yeah, that's a very bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> as he did point that out, yes. that um, it's not advice to follow, but he got the part. Um, but, you know, it was a different time and uh, so forth. Um, so let's talk about some of the obstacles, um, in making Demigod. First of all, tell us a little bit about, uh, what the movie is about and how you got involved in it. Um, you know, just kind of the backstory. Sure. So the movie is the story of Robin, a woman who travels to her birthplace in the black forest of Germany with her husband, Leo, to collect an inheritance her grandfather, Carl, has passed away and left her all of his worldly possessions. And Robin has been estranged from her grandfather for many years and left Germany at a relatively early age. Um, but something pulls her back, um, a connection uh, to her grandfather. And, you know, as Leo says in the film, you must have meant something to him. He left you everything he, he owned. Um, and she, she's just compelled to go back and find out what this is about. And as it turns out, um, the inheritance left her is far more macabre and terrifying than she bargained for, and it includes a connection to the Kernunos cult and his priestesses and a wild hunt ritual uh, that Robin and Leo suddenly become uh, imperiled by. Um, that's sort of the basic narrative without giving away any spoilers. But um, the film is um, – uh, I'm not the only producer on it. Um, my producing team – consists of Lindsay Ann Williams, my partner in life and art, and James Boolean and Wesley O'Mary. We had produced a film together last year uh, that was released last year called The Dinner Party, and we had a very positive experience on that film and, and thought we had created something special, and we wanted to do something else fairly quickly to capitalize on the momentum generated by that film. Uh, my co-writer on Dinner Party, Mike Horn, had a script he wanted us to look at, consideration for production. It was sort of a... Um, 
wild, wild hunt narrative that was sort of the hook. Um, and the bones were good, um, but I felt um, it needed something. Some it was, it was missing something from a character and mythos maybe perspective. So Lindsay, my wife, and I sat down. We started talking about it. Um, one of the first ideas that came up was the idea to explicitly name the hunter character who was sort of nebulous in these early drafts and we chose Kernunos, um the the gallo celtic nature deity uh and his cult because you know vegetation deities are just they're badass and 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 they're vicious and they're they're you know i mean look at dionysus for example um because of course the human beings connection to the earth the ability to to grow things that you can eat to, to capture and perhaps kill animals that you're going to eat, to use them as, um, uh, you know, beats of burden for plowing and tilling fields, all these things. This is absolutely critical to human survival. And these deities are the guardians, right, of that natural realm. Mm. Um, and we thought it was particularly interesting to, to, to sort of seize upon Ternunos or, or a vegetation deity right now as we're having these discussions about climate change and men's impact on the natural world without getting political, but it's in, it's in the ether and it's, it's, it's a conversation that that's important. I'll say that. Um, so um, we, we, we pushed Kernunos a little bit more in, into the sinister realm, typically sort of a more uh, benevolent uh, among the nature deities Um but even in the late antique world, in the medieval world, he was already being um, um, sort of com- uh, a, a compartmentalized, I guess, or, or assimilated with other cults like the cult of Dispater, the Roman underworld god, or uh, the cult of Herne, which is the, the Germanic god of the hunt. Um, so we didn't feel too bad about diverging from the mythology a little bit. Um, and then uh, I think the other big inroad into the story was the creation of the Amalia character, who in Mike's early draft was like a 15-year-old boy. And we wanted to say something about lineage and family and, 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 and daughters and their connection to um, controlling men, speaking of being con- a control freak. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and so, uh, so we found sort of in Amalia a kind of companion to Robin, our lead, and those those two characters, of course, forge a relationship in the course of the narrative. Um, so we made the character uh, a young girl. We made her younger, and and she, of course, has an imposing, complicated father uh, in Arthur, whom I play in the film. So. Um, once we got the whole story in, in a place we felt really good about, we we started uh, fundraising, of course, and 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 looking for a location. Uh, one of the things that we always think about with regard to indie film is limited locations, limited cast, which of course this had, but those woods and that cabin had to be perfect. Um, and we knew we wanted to shoot in Mississippi, which has, to my mind, the best uh, film incentive rebate program in the country, and. Fortunately, a lot of the forests in Mississippi share characteristics with the black forest. Um, a lot of evergreens, pine, spruce, fir, that sort of stuff. So ultimately, we landed in Lumberton, Mississippi on, at Little Black Creek Campground and Park. And that location worked out beautifully, not only because of 
how closely it approximated the black forest, but there were enough cabins and housing on site to, to house our entire cast and crew, which was important that because we were sequestering because of COVID, nobody left set or we only had designated people that could leave set. Of course, they would have to get tested before they came back. And, and the COVID protocols, you know, it's, let's face it, necessary, absolutely necessary, but also onerous for an indie film. Uh, from a time, it's a time suck when you're testing people three or four times a week and you're testing them, you know, at the top of the day or at lunch or whatever. Um, and then the, 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 the cost associated with it. So we knew there were going to be obstacles with this film. Uh, another of which is it's largely exterior. We're shooting in December. It's cold. It's very cold in Mississippi. It was, it was one of the colder Mississippi Decembers that I can remember. We got down into the 20s some nights, which worked. I love it when you can see the actor's breath. That's awesome, but it's still tough to deal with uh, on set. Um, so, but um, we, uh, you know, somehow it all came together. It was a very, it was a very hard shoot for, for some of the reasons I mentioned and, and some others, but we're pleased with how it turned out. I mean, did you ever consider with COVID not filming? Um, no. I, I mean, I, I'm pretty stubborn when it comes to when I commit to doing something, I do it, you know, um, by hook or crook, whatever it takes. I'm, I, I gotta make it happen. I just won't let myself uh, do otherwise. I knew COVID would be an issue. And in fact, um, we had an actor fly in from Los Angeles for our show. In that instance, the actor has to test before coming to set. This actor tested, tested positive, which, and the actor was playing a fairly significant role, which meant we had to shake up the cast. Um, we had to move one actor from a smaller role into a larger role and another actor into a different role. It kind of created this, this domino effect uh, in the cast. Now, as it turns out, the actor that was elevated to the larger role, Elena Sanchez, who plays Latara in our film, was an absolute MVP. Because Elena is not only a wonderful actress and stunt person, who, you know, we set on... Oh, I should, that's a spoiler. But there's a big stun at the end of the film <laughs> with Elena. But, but um, she also is fluent in German. So wow. she has a German parent. So she speaks both English and German fluently. So while we had a dialect coach in New York that we were working with remotely, Oliver Hoffer, now we had Elena on set with us. And when she's not working, when she's not acting, she was like, I'm just, I don't want to just sit in my cabin. Let, let me come to set and I'll, you know, give you pointers on the German and the dialect and all that stuff. So it, it, it somehow it turned out, you know, even better than we could have imagined. That doesn't mean it was not absolutely harrowing at the time. Um, and we're all, you know, wringing our heads and beating our, our heads against the wall and going, maybe we shouldn't have shot during COVID. But, um, you know, once we wrapped and we started seeing the footage and, and, and seeing what we had in the can, we we were all feeling pretty good about ourselves. So what was the feeling of going to Mississippi to film this since, you know, you, you have that connection to the state as your early home state? Um, you know, did that have a special meaning to you to be able to go back there? I know there were incentives and so forth, but, you know, was there another, like, uh, emotional connection to being in your home state? 
I always, when, when I'm shooting in Mississippi, I always feel um, a, a certain amount of pride to be able to uh, give back and invest in the place where I came from. And I think too often um, artists of, of any, any stripe or genre, they leave where they come from and then you, that, that birthplace is sort of forgotten and they don't, you know, you don't hear from them again. And I didn't want to be that person. So um, I've committed to setting up my production company in Mississippi and, and whenever possible shooting our films in Mississippi. And, and, and we've had a very good track record so far. Um, six features in Mississippi. Um, and I've, I've really been consistently amazed with, I mean, these, Although the last four have been horror films, you know, they're, they're, these are all kind of different movies with different location needs, different architectural needs, geographic needs. And somehow Mississippi has worked every time. Um, like whether we needed something that looked like a really upscale hoity-toity bed and breakfast or whether we needed, you know, a rundown dive biker bar or whether we needed a university setting, or whether we needed the Black Forest. Somehow Mississippi has uh, has delivered. So, um, you know, Mississippi, of course, is not without its problems, but um, it, it certainly has been kind to us in the location department. Well, that's a definitely a great way to for tourism to show off your state, um, yeah. you know, in these different settings, like, you know, if you can't make it to the Black Forest, you can go to, you know, seriously. You Lumberton. Know, I mean, it's great. <laughs> so, um, was there a moment that um, you didn't know whether to laugh or cry at something that happened while filming that you <laughs> might want to share with us? Uh, and there's one of those moments on every film that I've directed and produced. It's, uh, it's just the nature of the beast. You know, you, there's never enough money. There's never enough time. Uh, there, there, you know, there's never enough energy or waking hours. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, a couple of moments in addition to the, in addition to the, the COVID issue, which was a, a major upheaval that we overcame. Um, so we're shooting one of the big things that we were really excited about on this film is that we were shooting anamorphic widescreen with, with anamorphic lenses. That's, that's two to 40 aspect ratio. You get these amazing flares, which are all over our movie because every time the DP and I found one, we were like that, that shoot that, shoot that. <laughs> um, uh, so, but to shoot anamorphic, anamorphic technology is proprietary technology. So, the camera has to have an anamorphic license. You have to purchase an anamorphic license, um, and to, and you have to upload it on the on on the software of the camera uh, to be able to shoot. So we we got really lucky. We had to we rented one camera, but our DP had a friend who basically loaned us the second camera, um, and we were so excited. You know, we we knew we wanted to shoot with two cameras. We didn't know if we could afford it. Here, this guy comes through. He's like, look, I'll loan you my camera. Just pay for the shipping. Awesome. Killer. Get to set. The camera arrives. We're all set. We're, we're getting ready to, you know, prepping for day one. We find out that loan camera 
has no anamorphic license. Uh. <laughs> so, so we can't. So, so we can't even shoot. We can't shoot anamorphic on that camera, even if we even if we we wanted to. You know. So, so I mean, somehow I don't know. In the dead of night, producer Wesley O'Mary uh, managed to 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 purchase this thirty five hundred dollar, I think it was, anamorphic license, and get it uploaded so we could shoot the next day uh, on this camera. But it, 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 like, it was just kind of one thing like that after another on this film. It was, it was, and I'm not to say, not to say it wasn't an incredible, uh, rewarding experience. And I wonder how many of our cast even knew this stuff was going on. I mean, um, but behind the scenes, there was a lot of like, uh, oh my God, this could shut us down. Oh, we're, we're totally screwed, you know, whatever. Um, and that's, but, but, you know, to be honest, that's in the independent film business, when you can't buy your way out of problems, you're constantly improvising, you know, you're constantly figuring out and, you know, and, um, how to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Um, so, so we, we, we have come to expect it, but I think the additional layer of COVID, uh, largely exterior film, uh, the pr- pr- proprietary technology we were using in anamorphic, which looks fantastic, and, and I'm so pleased with it, but, but it comes with its own set of hurdles. We were working with a minor on this film. You know what they say, don't work with children and dogs, children and animals. Um, you know, she, our minor was absolutely wonderful, as was her mother, Rachel Riles, Regina Riles, her mother. But that, you know, you can't work tw- a 12-hour day with a minor. All right. Can't, you know? So, and Amalia, this it's a big, big role in the film. So there were a lot of things that we had to overcome. And if I, you know, looking back at it, I probably would have, if, if, if my, you know, current Miles were to go back to Miles before the show, I might say, uh, you're really crazy to try this <laughs> for the budget. And on top, and but, on top of that, you were working with your wife. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. And that, that all poses its own set of, you know, complexities, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, but she's, you know, she lends lens and I have developed an equilibrium, uh, and a working relationship that there, and we were doing an interview earlier where Lindsay was saying to the, the questioner, you know, from, from the outside, it might look antagonistic or like, um, you know, chaos or, but, but we have just developed this rapport. She tells me exactly what she thinks. I tell her exactly what I think. You know, there's a, there's a shorthand, there's a vernacular. I don't have to spend time talking to her about the emotional journey or the arc of the character or anything like that because we've already talked about all that. Right, She's yeah. been there in the script development, in the writing phase as we were developing these characters and figuring out who they were. Um, so, with, you know, when it comes to Lindsay, I can say, Hey, Linz, you're flaring your nostrils like you do. You're not going to like that in the editing room. <laughs> I, you know, I wouldn't say that to a, a regular actor, but but I could say it to her. You know, yeah. um, so we we have this thing, and she's also our costume designer. So the, these these amazing costumes, many of which she fabricated from scratch, um, that's her doing. And 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 the reason we're able to do what we do is because we have a team of folks, many of whom have worked with us on four or five films. I mean, our post team has been with us basically since 
our, our second film, Bradley Greer, our colorist, Jared Hollingsworth, um, composer Clifton Hyde, post-sound mixer John Vogel. These, these folks have done movie after movie after movie after movie with us. Uh, and that was critical here because much of this post work was done remotely. Right. I've never not been able to sit, sit in the editing room with my editor. That was hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, if, if Jared and I hadn't edited a bunch of movies together already, uh, I don't know if that would have come off as well as it did. Yeah. Hmm. Did it bring about a sense of like, you know, people that survive the, the Titanic sinking or, you know, uh, some tragedy or horrific experience? I mean, you you have that in common now, you know, where were you in the pandemic? We were, you know, in the black forest, which is only now the black, the pretend black forest in Mississippi, you know, making a movie. I didn't, you know, you have that, like not many people can say they have that during the pandemic. So did it unite you in some way in a special way? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's that old story of this of the cynic philosopher Diogenes going through the streets uh, of a great Greek city uh, begging for alms, and, and nobody gives him any. Nobody gives him any money or food or anything, and finally some guy walks up to him and says, why the hell are you doing this, Diogenes? And he says, I'm inuring myself to hardship, and, and, and there's something to that, <laughs> right? Uh. So, there's something to, you know— De- right, developing that those skills, right, to cope with the inevitable pain that it, that the that that a movie is going to bring down on your head at some point. Yeah. And your ability to problem solve and to deal with it without getting overly emotional and to pivot and to improvise, it, it, it makes you a better filmmaker. Um, and when you have a team of people that you've done that with, not once, not twice, but maybe three, four times you've sort of been through the fire with them. Uh, it, it absolutely creates a bond and it, it, and those relationships become very meaningful. Well, and I also wonder like, um, you know, was the outside world, like you're making a horror movie in this setting, but, uh, you know, is the outside world really like a bigger horror story going on? I mean, did you feel <laughs> maybe safe there, <laughs> safer than the yeah. rest of us? So, yeah. Yeah. Extra personal conflict. They, they, um, yeah. I mean, a- a- after a while, after a few days, because we're, te- like I said, we're testing three or four times a week. We're all sequestered on the property. The principals are never leaving, you know, Lynn's, myself, Rachel Nichols. I mean, we, we, Rachel Riles and her mom, we never leave the property. So after a while, you know, once everybody's tested negative for COVID two or three or four times, and, and we know we're around people that, that don't have it. You do kind of feel like, wow, we, we probably are a lot safer here than if we were going about our business in the, in the real world. Mm-hmm. And it sort of became like film camp, you know? Um, and, and it was a really cool vibe. I mean, we felt we, we, we really started feeling kind of like a family. Um, and I think that was important, certainly for the cast. Um, that, that they felt safe, that they felt like they were being taken care of, and they felt like they could actually go out and without a mask and play in front of the camera. Yeah. Hmm. 
All right, Kat. So, Kat, you got time for one more question. Oh, no. Not just one? Okay. Yeah, just one. All right. So, <laughs> you know, for people that love horror films, what does this offer? And for people that are maybe not a fan of it, what does it offer? Uh, that's a great question. I think um, for people who are fans of horror, especially folk horror, um, like The Wicker Man or The Keep or It Comes at Night or Midsummer, this is going to be right up your alley. It's It's got that woodland setting. It's got paganism and ritual and a hunt narrative and an ancient deity. Uh, and and it's, this movie is for you. If you love folk horror – and, and and fall, Halloween, you know, get in front of the fire with a, a mug of hot cocoa with maybe some brandy or some rum in it, if that's your thing. <laughs> this is this is your movie. Um, if if that's if that's not your thing, I think it's also a movie about family and what family means and and how how children are supposed to respond to and live with their parents or their grandparents expectations and what is lineage and how do you deal with generational trauma i mean i think on, on there is a level on which this is a kind of probing character drama uh, with regard especially to the character of robin and what she's going through so um and rachel is so wonderful and 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 probably some of your listeners have seen rachel whether that's in continuum or Cr- criminal minds or Man in High Castle or G.I. Joe or Conan the Barbarian or, you know, we could go on and on. Um, and this is really a lovely performance. She really nailed it. And this was the first film she did since the pandemic began, which I thought was really gratifying that she was willing to take a chance um, yeah. on an indie project, uh, knowing that you know, we weren't going to have anywhere near the money that she's used to making. So I, I think whether you're a horror buff or whether you just you just want to sort of dive into some some rich, complicated character drama, um, then this this movie is for you. And then the last thing I would say is, if you're a gore fiend, there's enough gore in the movie. I think it's I think we we chose our moments, but it's not so gory that if you're totally turned off by gore, you can't watch it. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Wow. <laughs> It sounds like something for everyone uh, coming out so. October 15th. Uh, where where can we see this? So uh, the film is going to be uh, releasing in select cities theatrically um, on October 15th. Um, and, uh, you know, if you can, if it is in your city and you have the ability to see it on the big screen and you feel safe doing so, uh, I would encourage you to do so because it's, this was this was shot to be seen on the biggest screen possible. Um, if you don't feel comfortable going to the movie theater or it's not in your city, you will be able to get it on all of the so-called per-click sites. That's anywhere you can click on it and buy it, you know, or rent it for a certain amount of time, like iTunes or Google Play or Fandango Now, uh, and or all that good stuff. Um, so it's it's. It will be available to you uh, wherever you are in North America uh, on October 15th. But wherever you see it, see it on the biggest screen possible with the best sound possible because we spent a lot of time thinking about the visual aesthetic and the sound world of this film. Awesome. 
Well, Matt, uh, you know, I think we need to get a big screen and uh, <laughs> <laughs> plan to watch it. Uh, yeah, on the yeah. It sounds, sounds interesting for sure. And now that yeah. I know the stories behind it, I, you know, would be probably more more interested in seeing it. I mean, horror isn't my thing, yeah. but, uh, you know, definitely the, you know, knowing the backstories and uh, obviously having a connection with the producer, you know. Uh, <laughs> makes it a little bit different. <laughs> but uh, well, I would love for you, I would love for you guys to check it out, and would love to hear what you both think. Awesome, we will do that. Uh, so on that note, we are going to end this episode because I know you have things that you would like to do other than talk to us. Uh, so uh, we thank you for your time, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll get to do this again. Thank you both. I appreciate it very, very much. Alright, we'll uh, talk to you all soon. Take care. As always, if you have any questions, concerns, or comments, you can send those to cat at iwriteplays at outlook.com or you can write to me at backstorysessions at gmail.com or matt at level11ventures.com Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.